Let's open our Bibles to John 7, excuse me, John 17, John 17, 14 through 19. I've preached a whole sermon series on this chapter. Um, I believe it was four or five weeks we spent on John 17 several years ago. It's a passage I'm going to come back to, not just today, but all throughout um, my life as a pastor. Um, Ministers have their, their favorite parts of the scriptures. Certainly one of those chapters for me as a pastor is John 17. And um, maybe the reason that I, I even mention that is, is it would be good if, if every Christian has those passages and chapters of scripture where, where you can just go back to time and again um, and, and even see new things that you perhaps have not noticed before. I think that that will happen for us as we open the, the, uh, the passage once again, um, as Jesus said about uh, the Word of God, that, that, that when we go to it, we find new treasures as well as old. Um, that's what happens in the kingdom of God. And so um, certainly we'll hear words we've probably heard before, um, but also words that we would maybe hear in a new kind of way. And um, maybe just prefacing the passage so that we can uh, glean as much as possible from it as I'm reading Jesus, in this passage, is praying to the Father. He's preparing to go to the cross. He's preparing to to serve the Father and follow his will, going all the way to death. And um, he's he's getting ready, and the way that he gets ready is to pray. And so we might wonder, what does he pray about? That's a good question. What does Jesus pray about? That's a good question for us to think about occasionally. What did Jesus pray about? How does the Bible instruct us to pray when we're getting ready for something? And so Jesus prayed for himself, and he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed also for you and me, for us. Now that is an amazing truth. Just even before we know what he prayed for us about, just knowing that Jesus prayed for us and intercedes even now for us before the throne is an amazing truth. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for your salvation. Certainly he did that. But additionally, he intercedes for us before the Father. So instead of that truth uh, sort of stoking our egos... (laughs) And making us think, we're pretty great that Jesus would pray for us before he went to the cross. And that's not really the intention of that truth. But rather, it should make us in awe of Christ. That his heart was so full of love. That he wasn't just thinking about himself as he prepared to go to the cross, but for his disciples and for those who would believe their message. That is us, 2,000 years later. So Jesus is so full of love in the, mo- the final moments of his earthly life, that he prayed for us, for you and for me. What did he pray? We'll read just part of it, verses 14 through 19. I commend the whole chapter to, your, to you for the rest of the week, but we'll focus on these five verses. Starting at verse 14, referring to the disciples and, and to us also, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We find here some good teaching that helps us answer one of the most basic questions we could ask in the Christian faith. One of the most pressing questions for every generation of Christians is, how ought a Christian relate to the world? How does a Christian, one who has been born again by the Spirit, by grace, through faith in Christ, how does a Christian who is a new creation live in the world? So, as we answer that question, we need to define our terms so that we would get to the right answer. And so we need to ask, what do we mean when we talk about the world? What is the world? (laughs) Now, of course, we know what the earth is and its physical properties and so forth. But um, we need to think more maybe theologically here. What does Jesus mean by the world that we're sent into and that we're not of? And when we think rightly about that, I think that we'll get to lots of good applications from this passage. So we don't want to make things too complicated by overthinking a simple question, but we do all need to be on the same page regarding the definition of understanding the world accurately in the biblical sense so that we can get to an accurate interpretation of this passage. The world is so much more than the physical creation that God has made. Sometimes the Bible refers to the world in a very positive way. And so, um, if you think of the world as a positive thing, then it's something that you would want to go experience, right? The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. I love that passage. I think about it almost every day as I'm going about my ministry. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We could think of the children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Or we could remember the story of creation itself, where God sees all that he has made, all that he has made, and he calls it good each day, and at the end calling it very good. So some people would say, yes, but sin came into the world afterwards, but we can still profess our belief that what God made in the world is good and indeed is even very good. And so there's a positive way of thinking about the world. On the other hand, we also find references in the Bible where the world is referred to as a negative thing. Really, the, one of the main passages for this is 1 John two, fifteen through 17, where John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides 
forever. And so there we see a contrast between the Christian or the, the spiritually minded a person who's been born again in Christ who is seeking things that are above, who is seeking things where Christ is seated, who has their mind set on, on the future and on union with Christ, that person is going to be separate in a lot of ways from what, a, what we would call a worldly person cares most about, the things of this life, what John said, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so there we have a more negative understanding of the world itself. And uh, Jesus himself talks this way as well when he's teaching his disciples in John, or, sorry, Matthew 18, verse 7. He says, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. So this isn't just an example where somebody later in the New Testament says something that sounds really different than what Jesus would say, but all of Scripture confirms the rest of Scripture. And so in 1 John 2, we have the same idea that Jesus himself taught in a passage like Matthew 18. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. So from the context of those passages, we can see that sometimes God's word is warning us to be careful about becoming too worldly. You could see there's a real difference here in understanding. If we think of the world only as positive, we'll be naive about the dangers in the world. If we think about the world only, though, as negative, I think at times we will forget the good things that God has made or that God is doing in the world. So, still other times in the Bible, the world is a more neutral term that generally describes humanity and, and God's creation. So within the whole of humanity and in God's creation, there is a mix a mixture of blessing, of God's activity, of seeing, of visions of who God is in his creation, in his salvation that he provides for us, and, and also mixed in with that, you're going to see sin and rebellion against God. And there's going to be temptation and dangers. Jesus teaches exactly this when he is teaching a parable in Matthew 13. And so he's, he's teaching about how wheat and weeds live together in a field. And he's explaining the parable to his disciples, and he, he describes this. He describes it in this way. You'll see it on the screen. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. He says he's come to share truth, to show God's love, to bring the kingdom of God into the world. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And so he sends not just truth, but, but us, people, into the world. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And so he says there, the field is the world. And in this field... We see the arena of God's work, but we also see that the weeds are the sons of the evil one. There's, there's weeds that spring up, that threaten the life of um, those who would follow God, abiding in Christ. So each of these different definitions makes us see that it can be kind of complicated to understand this matter of how a Christian relates to the world. What is the correct posture? 
that we would take, that you would take when going to work tomorrow, or that you would take when, when driving in your car or going shopping? What is the correct posture that you would take as a Christian engaging with the world around you? Is it a posture of suspicion? Certainly many Christians today are known as people who are suspicious of others, you know, um, always keeping everyone at arm's length, keeping your distance for your own spiritual safety's sake. Or, on the other hand, is the Christian trusting, you know, just thinking he's got the whole world in his hands, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and so we're going to trust what we find out in the world. It's all under his authority. Do we embrace the world like that, or do we reject the world? So many of the issues facing the church today are, are fit under this umbrella of how the Christian thinks of the world. You think of politics, and this is really at the essence of that question. How does the Christian relate to a world where there's sin and where God is also at work? You think of ethics or theological debates, and this is the question that you'll ultimately drill down to. Some people are overwhelmed by what is happening in the world, overwhelmed by fear, by concern. They hear what's going on in the world, and and even though these are people who are born again, they feel oppressed and at times shaken because of some knowledge uh, that they've seen in the news or that they've read about. And so if that's the attitude that people would have towards the world, they would come to church trying to escape from the world. It's often these kinds of people who would say, don't talk about politics in church, or don't talk about anything remotely that could be interpreted as political because they see all of this turmoil out there and they would say, I just want to get away from all that. Now, there's some truth to that desire. There's some goodness to that desire, but is that the only thing that we should think about the world? Such people would think of our graduating seniors here at Ammon Valley, these young people who are going to be going into the world. And they would be fearful for these young people. Their mind toward, uh, could turn towards spiritual dangers. And they're exiting the safety of their homes and of their schools. And so they're worried about what is ahead. How did Jesus pray for us? We find in John seventeen fifteen. It's a prayer that we need to make for or to offer up for ourselves. Jesus says, I do not ask you, Father, that you would take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that, that we would be spiritually safe even while living out among everyone, other people in the world where there's temptation and sin. So this means that we should not seek to escape from the world. It sounds like a very basic thing to say, but there are so many individuals and churches and denominations that are seeking to escape from the world. But Jesus says he does not desire that we would be taken out of the world, that we would shun the world or reject the world, but that we, as we are in the world, would be kept from the evil one, that we would be kept from temptation and sin. 
from wandering away. So the call here is to live for Christ in the world. To live for Christ in the world. How? He's given us his word. He's given us the truth. And that's really where his prayer goes right after he says to the Father, do not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. And he he continues, sanctify them in the truth. In verse 17, your word is truth. And then he goes on, we're going to be sent out with that truth, with uh, the message of Christ, with the law of God written on our hearts and minds, so that we would be kept from the evil one. So, this confronts a desire to escape. Because Jesus did not pray that we would all just escape. Uh, There are certain beliefs about the end times that I find really contrast to this prayer of Jesus, where some, some people in some congregations, denominations, promote a belief of the end times that we're waiting to escape to get out of here. And it's almost thinking of the world as it's all going to burn and go away and we hope that God snatches us up out of here before things get really bad. It's not really how the Christian ought to think. Because Jesus said he does not desire that we would be taken out of the world, even speaking uh, corporately as a church, but that we would be kept from the evil one. So this confronts a desire to escape And that desire comes from fear. We could examine for a few moments how our fear would prompt in us a motivation to escape from the world, that we would be afraid of what we'll find when we sort of turn that rock over. You know, what are we going to find underneath? When we go out into the world, when we get a job, when we go to a different school, what are we going to find when we get there? And so some Christians live in fear of that, fear of change, fear of engaging the world. But brothers and sisters, the Christian is not afraid of the world. You ought not be afraid of the world. Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing in the world. And he gives a long list of things that are in the world, dangers, persecution, famine, nakedness and sword. He talks about all of these things that could happen to the Christian. Neither height nor depth nor angels or demons or anything else in all creation can separate you from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. So you're not afraid. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing in the world. It really helps me to hear the stories of saints from previous generations who believed and who experienced that truth that despite persecution, despite the whole world, it seems, being against them, they were not separated from the love of God. They were faithful Christians. There's a a great saint, Athanasius, who... uh, believed in the divinity of Jesus and fought for that doctrine in his life. And it seemed like so many people were against him so much so that there was a little phrase attached to Athanasius that that people would say, it's Athanasius against the world. And he was right. And Christ kept him. 
And we find that in, in stories all throughout church history, even today as well, as believers hold on to the gospel, even when the world around them is against them. This past week, as I've been preparing for my, my travel to England, I've been listening to podcasts about the lives of English pastors, and um, particularly of the Puritan era. So the Puritan era really began in the Reformation, the 1550s, and really spread through to the year about 1700 or so. So those 150 years in England would often be called a Puritan era. Uh, Not so much because the Puritans were in authority, certainly that was not always the case, uh, but because this was a rich time of of writing, of reform theology, of people, uh, ministers, family, families pointing to the supremacy of Christ, the goodness of the simple gospel of salvation in Jesus' name. And so I've been listening to stories of these pastors, um, particularly in the mid-1600s. And life was not easy to be a pastor in England who would teach the same things that I preach from this pulpit, the same things we believe and profess in this church. Reformed theology, uh, the, the, the exaltation of God in the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith and it's not by works. So this simple gospel, when it was preached in England in certain decades, brought persecution on ministers. For example, it was in the 1660s when King Charles II passed laws that immediately defrocked about a quarter of the entire of all of the pastors of England. So the king passed a law that said uh, 20 to 25 percent of all of the pastors are done. You're fired. And so not only were they defrocked, but the punishment for any pastor who would proclaim the gospel was that they were not even allowed to enter a city or town. And so this is the reason why John Bunyan, author of The Pilgrim's Progress, was buried outside the town of London in what is called Bunhill Fields. It's the reason that Isaac Watts, the man who wrote that hymn we sang earlier, is buried in Bunhill Fields in that cemetery, what was then outside the city limits of London. These ministers, faithful men of God, were not even allowed to go into a city or town, and so they and their families were cast out into the wilderness, literally. Many of them were martyred and killed. Now, you would hear about that, and you would wonder, how did they react? What did they do? From that description, you would think that these pastors just would have been producing one book after another of how good the good old days were, when they could preach in their churches and enjoy fellowship in their congregations and serve communion and baptize children and and new believers and live just a simple life of following God, you would think that, that they would be producing all kinds of laments and, and uh, sort of communications of anger towards Charles II because the world was against them. This was a, a small percentage of English uh, people w- would go to these churches. But what you would actually find in their writing is joy is a love of Christ, is of confidence in the Word of God. That is why I love to read Puritan literature, because the world, in so many ways, was against them, and they were absolutely 
content with whatever lot the Lord provided. So, you would find in their materials that they produce um, joy even despite being imprisoned, like John Bunyan was, or ostracized or cast out or even martyred for their faith. And so we could wonder, how did they get there to that place of joy, even despite persecution? How do they live this way? Because the Father answered Jesus' prayer. Because the Father answered Jesus' prayer that, that we would be kept from the evil one, sanctified in the truth, sent into the world, not with fear, but with confidence in Christ. So here's what one of those pastors wrote. William Gurnall, a Puritan minister who lived in this tumultuous time. I put the dates of his life up there. I mean, this was a hard time to live in England, 1617 to 1679. Here's what he wrote. Why should you fear to be stripped of that which you have already resigned to Christ? It is the first lesson you learn if a Christian. To deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow your master so that the enemy comes too late. You have no life to lose because you've given it already to Christ. Nor can man take away that without God's leave. That is a good theology of how the Christian interacts with the world. Not fearful, not, but neither is it um, fleeing or trying to escape from the world either. It's going to be engaging the world in confidence because our life is secure in Christ, like what the Apostle Paul wrote. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, there's a great truth in Jesus' prayer that corrects the errors of thinking wrongly about the world. And we find it in verse 18, where Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them into the world. Into the world. So we are sent into the world as Jesus was. Neither affirming sin nor hating sinners. That's how Jesus was sent into the world, with a message of salvation, with good news. That's what was heralded at Jesus' birth, right? The angels come to bring good news of great joy for all the people, because on that day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the message we go into the world with as well. But unfortunately, so many think that that the only approaches that we could have towards the world is either to affirm and embrace it with all of its sin and temptation or to shun and hate it. But if we're sent into the world as Jesus was sent into the world, we, we reject both of those options, to affirm sin or to hate sinners. We say no, we're, we're sent in to love our neighbors with the gospel message. If we're sent into the world as Jesus was, we will love people. But we have to recognize that whatever the Bible calls sin, we will call sin. Whatever the Bible calls sin will ruin people's lives. And so we don't go into the world to affirm people in whatever sin they might be caught up in. That's not what Jesus did in his ministry. But instead to to invite them out into real life 
to real life in Jesus' name. When you think about going to work this week, remember that you are sent there as Jesus was sent into the world. And Paul wrote in Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be to love neighbors, to care for others, to give attention, not to run away at the, a moment of resistance, but, but to engage thoughtfully, wisely, tactfully with the people who are around you. So how was Jesus sent into the world? We find a great description of his ministry in the two verses after the most well-known verse in the Bible. So you probably know John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You probably have heard that before. But if you continue reading, you would learn a lot about what we ought to think about the world as well. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. So if we're sent into the world as Jesus was, we are not sent into the world to condemn the world, but in order that it would be saved through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this means that as we think about a topic like Uh, persecution of Christians or opposition to the church in our culture, we don't bring these issues up to condemn the world. But we bring these issues up to say that God has been faithful in the past and that God will be faithful to us and good to us today and that we ought to walk with him and trust him. So I want to give you a couple examples of an attitude towards the world as I start to wrap up. An attitude, just giving you examples of what this might look like to have a fearful, hostile attitude that Jesus did not have as he was sent into the world. And would, well, I'll contrast that with uh, the attitude of a minister who I think was, was right in line with what Jesus was praying about. I recently watched a video of a panel of pastors where they were asked about the future of Christianity in America. It's a good question to ask some pastors, or really any person, a good thing to think about. What is Christianity likely going to face in this nation in decades ahead? Now, of course, we can't be too definitive because the Lord could bring revival or could turn things whichever way he wants them to go. But these pastors were, set, were asked, sort of, given what we see now happening and where we see things likely going, what do you think about the future? The first pastor had a spirit of condemnation about him. He had a spirit of judgment about him as he answered that question. He was angry that Christians are not respected in the way that we should be. He was upset that there was a time when a lot more people went to church than go to church today. He was really frustrated that there was a time when Christians had a lot more influence in the government than what it seems like they have today. He was thinking about all of the ways that things used to be and how it's just not that good anymore. And this pastor went on to say, and it's going to get worse. So that's an attitude you could have towards the world. What struck me in his answer, actually he talked for about 10 minutes and never said a positive word. It was all 
negativity. And just as you think broadly about Christianity, you might think about yourself as well. You get caught up in that attitude at times. Maybe you're someone who is sick, sick a lot. And you would think almost like that pastor, things used to be so much better than they are right now. What's going on? This just isn't the way that my life is supposed to be going. I used to be healthy and vibrant and have things together, and now what's happening? And so we think of the world not just in the general broad abstract sense, but in the very personal sense as well, that in the world we get sick and we get hurt and relationships fall apart. And so how are we going to react when these storms come into our lives? How will we respond? Will it be like that, Pastor, just to, to, to rant about the bad things that are happening and how it might get worse? The other pastor took a different approach. He said, God is so good. God is so faithful. God is so powerful. Christ is is on his throne. He's seated on his throne. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. God has been good through every generation. Sustaining Puritans in the 1660s, sustaining Athanasius in uh, the 400s, sustaining generation after generation after generation. And, and when we say that, we're not naive that life was hard for Athanasius and it was hard for William Gurnall and Isaac Watts and John Bunyan. And it, it is difficult at times. But God is good all the time. God is good all the time. And so, because God is good and his love for us is perfect and powerful, we're not afraid of the world. We're sent to love them. So which attitude reflects your thinking? Which attitude reflects how you would respond to being sick or hearing about politics or thinking about the future, young people especially? Is it an attitude of of fear and and, I don't know about this change and if I could really handle it? Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, (laughs) he's got you. He's got you. The question of how we relate to the world is essential for this theme of, of pilgrimage, the pilgrim's progress. If you're afraid of the world, you'll never be a pilgrim. You'll never go anywhere. You're going to stay where you are, keep things the same. We began the sermon series thinking about Psalm 84, verse 5. Blessed are those who have their hearts set on pilgrimage, whose strength is in the Lord. Blessed are those who who go and experience new things and meet new people and take new experiences and, and apply the word of God to them, the truth of God to everything in life. And I hope that that this call to pilgrimage will be not a call into all kinds of scary places, but this call of Christian pilgrimage, whether that's an actual pilgrimage for you to go somewhere different, somewhere that would be spiritually stimulating for you, a church that you've always wanted to visit, or um, some site that was significant to you in some way, that, that as you go into those places, or even as you experience life in the week ahead, that you would not be afraid, but that you would know God has something good for me there. God has something good for me 
that's in store for me. He blesses those who walk in his ways. I hope that this summer you enjoy something good that God has provided and ordained for you to receive. And that as we receive good things from him, as we follow him, we grow in faith. We grow in our trust in his truth. God has us in the world right now. And there is so much to be thankful for. Jesus is alive. He saved us. He blesses us every day. This summer, the Lord invites you and me as well to taste and see in this world that the Lord is good. Is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so I hope that you'll find things this summer to experience and remember that God is good. And that the world is not pure evil to be shunned or avoided. But there are so many good things God provides for us. Not just spiritual blessings, but, but physical things as well. And in Joshua chapter 4, the Lord tells Joshua to build a memorial on the banks of the Jordan River after the Israelites cross over the Jordan River on dry ground. And God says, put up some stones in that place so that all the generations that follow would remember that he did something great in the world, <laughs> that Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And, and I would hope that throughout your summer ahead, you'll see those, those piles of stones that would remind you that God does great things in the world, among his people, for our sake and even for the sake of the whole world. So we ought not be afraid. It is true that God has kept us in the world, and that is not a bad thing because God blesses us in the world. And yet, the world is not ultimately our home. It is not ultimately our home. It's our home now. <laughs> but ultimately, we are on our way to a better world. So when you embrace a lifestyle of pilgrimage, you'll remember that there is so much to be thankful for that God is doing in, in our lives, but at the same time, you'll remember you're on the move. You're moving somewhere forward. You're going to greater union with Christ all the time. That's the Christian journey. So the Christian pilgrim moves forward, not because we're afraid and want to escape the world, but because we're following Jesus into life. Amen. Let's pray.